Hi, this is Todd Merrill. Welcome to Tales from the Sky Lounge. Tales from the Sky Lounge is a podcast about business consulting and venture investing, where we talk to lots of people out there in the world who are making it happen, traveling out to clients, and have a unique perspective on the business and consulting in the world of technology. Come on in as we talk to our first guest, Maria Goldshoal in the Sky Lounge. Maria, hey Todd, welcome to the Sky Lounge. It's so great to have you here. Maria, why don't you give us a little bit of background about who you are before we get going? Yep. Um, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, this is um, a lot of fun. I'm very excited. I'm a fractional chief people officer or CHRO, chief human resource officer. And uh, generally what I do is I come in in a growth phase or some event, some trajectory of growth in an organization and help the organization professionalize their human resource function. So to your point, I, I'm actually brought in sometimes post-capital raise to professionalize HR, compensation, um, organizational design, coaching of leaders to try to get them to the next level. And I do that with TechCXO, our company. And um, uh, I also have a recruiting team and uh, directors of HR here at TechCXO that report into me. Yes. And I've used that superpower of yours that's hidden sometimes, the uh, recruiting function. You and I and your team have built a lot of really great software teams um, with some of our TechCXO clients. What? Um, so I know that you know, just beyond software teams, you recruit a lot of leadership, right? You recruit a lot of CXO um, type people. What what do you look for, you know, when you're interviewing that um, CRO or head of sales or, you know, even a CEO? What What is it that really stands out to you at the C-level? Yeah. You know, as you can imagine, like when I'm, when I'm, the recruiting function originally started to backfill some of our fractional people. So if you're fractional, it's not forever and that client eventually needs a permanent uh, replacement. And so that's how the recruiting practice started. And by virtue of the fact that we've done this over and over and over again, and I've seen uh, as the HR leader and the executive coach very often inside of organizations, I've seen all kinds of leaders from super high egos to, uh, you know, super humble and, you know, um, all in learning mode. I will tell you where I sort of have netted out over the years is a concept called sort of authentic leadership. And for those of us who have been in tech for a really long time, there's this great book in tech called uh, Radical Candor. Um, and it was written by a former, I believe, Facebook exec who talked about uh, the intersection of care and concern for your team um, and being able to deliver candid and good feedback uh, as you would basically in your personal relationships. So um, when you ask what I look for, I look for humility. Um, you have to have a, enough of an ego that you'll do something as risky as doing a startup. Um, but you also have to have a sense of humility and a recognition that it's a team of people that gave you somewhere. It's not your yourself. Um, and I really think that the best leaders and the ones that I've attached myself to long term are the ones who understand that formula. And as a result of that, also get the value of the human capital function and how a human capital partner can be tied at the hip with the CEO to be able to deliver that level of authentic leadership and build the team to the level where you know they can continue to scale as an organization. So it's not just about the resume. It's about some of the soft skills. And it sounds like as you go further up the the value chain in the company, that those soft skills become more and more important. 
Yeah, I mean, the resume is a price of entry, right? We all, uh, in order to get that job, you have to have the resume. What you don't always have is the soft skills. And the soft skills is what we interview for and what we develop. And then sometimes I come in and try to help somebody get to that place where they recognize that. And we mm -hmm. all had that growth time in our in our career, a period of time where you realize, you know, oh, oh, this has to be about more than just me. This has to be about the group of people that work with me. Yeah. So what would you tell a mid-career um, person who's looking to maybe level up to that C-level title that doesn't really have that experience yet? What should they be working on on themselves? You know, what, what separates like a VP, an early VP or director from a truly C-level person? You know, what are the things that they have to work on? What are the things that they bring to the table? Yeah, so I mean, my... I've learned many lessons in life. And the, the <laughs> greatest thing that I could tell people is learn quickly uh, and correct quickly and be okay with the fact that you've made mistakes. Um, and uh, so I would say, like, try things. And also, you know, I met with someone this morning who I'm mentoring into an HR plan uh, into be, becoming an HR person. And I, I said to her, to me, a career is is a, a, a nonlinear. In other words, you know, we were taught that this is the way we go. We go up, right? Um, mm -hmm. But my impression is it's in the changes, in the nonlinear changes in your career, looking at this random thing you want to learn, under meeting this random person you want to meet, trying this really weird job that maybe doesn't pay you as much as something else but sounds super interesting, doing the things that come in the periphery of what you've planned, I think, is the stuff that gets you the best experience. In my career, that certainly has been true. I uh, left a regular role where I was, was making a really wonderful salary to do a startup once with someone, and she was paying half of what I was making. Um, but I took that leap because it was a very interesting thing to do. I became the chief operating officer of that company. I started pre-revenue, and I left when it was a $16 million company. That wow. set my career apart. Yeah. Um, but it was this really big risk that everybody looked at me like I was crazy. So that's what I mean when I say nonlinear. If you plan things too perfectly, you're going to miss what's in the periphery. So I think that's the fastest way to sort of gain expertise and experience. Yeah, I think, um, you know, life has a way of kind of throwing weird things in your path, especially mid-career. You know, you get out of school, you know what that first job is going to look like. If you're lucky, a lot of people go, you know, a different route at that point. But I think, you know, five to eight, maybe 10 years in, all these weird things happen, you know, particularly in tech where everything moves so fast and you just, you're not guaranteed a job, right? And and you're not guaranteed that your company is going to be a company even, you know, for, for long periods of time. And so you have to be very nimble and, and be willing to switch horses. You know, I, I, th I, think, I think a lot of times people are scared, you know, they, they just have this preconceived notion, like you're saying, of, you know, there's a career path where you go from A to B to C to D, and then you're a junior, then you're senior, then you're a director, then you're a VP. And life isn't like that, right? It, it just kind of throws you weird curveballs. I so, think yeah, yeah. A, lot of it, a lot of it has to do with trusting yourself. And the way that you trust yourself is through having experiences where you prove to yourself that you can do things. So, for example, I mentioned to you when we were originally talking that I think one of the best things that could happen to you is to be laid off or fired from a job. I tell my kids this this time and they, they look at me like I'm crazy. You should aspire to be fired someday. And the reason you should aspire to be fired someday is because 
it's humbling. And the first thing you do is you prove to yourself that I'm okay, I'll figure it out. And you do figure it out. And very often, because I'm also in the position, unfortunately, in HR of being involved in layoffs sometimes. And um, I'll find people in the street randomly, or they'll call me later on and say that that change was the best change that ever happened to me. It actually set me in the direction of doing my dream job or something completely different. And so I think it's through that stuff that you really learn and you become, you develop your leadership expertise, you develop the confidence in yourself to be able to continue to grow. Yeah. I remember one time I was working at Siena, like back in the day during the telecom boom period and, you know, everything kind of melted down after that Y2K, you know, dot-com crash. And, you know, we all got laid off in waves and it was horrible. And then um, what I realized was I knew a lot of really smart people and a lot of really great companies, you know, a year or two or three or 10 later. And that's, that was a horrible day that turned into one of the greatest moments in my career unexpectedly. And you just never know how how all this stuff is going to work. Exactly. Yeah. So Maria, a lot of people are going through that right now. You know, layoffs are, you know, in the news, you know, usually that's just part of the cycle. And, you know, we've been around enough to see some of these cycles, you know, some of these uh, people that are in leadership positions right now that we talk to all the time, haven't had that experience yet. You know, and, and things are hard right now. What is it about doing hard things that is so compelling and so difficult? <laughs> you yeah. know, not everybody's got it in them to, to have the grit to push through. You know, what is it about hard things that's important? Yeah, I think uh, so. You know, you and I work for a company that where most of what we do is growth phase startups. Uh, and so you become addicted to some degree of that going through hard things together, um, much like you would be in uh, any brotherhood or any sisterhood or, you know, the army or anything like that, where you go through as a crew, you go through difficult things together. It creates this sort of resilience and this stick stickiness uh, and this sense of satisfaction that really can't be beat in my opinion. And I don't think it's for everyone, I will say. And in fact, when we hire, we look for that. We look for people who, love this, love the messiness of this, love the difficulty of this, love the, the, the highs and the lows. Um, in, in this, that company I was mentioning to you that I helped build, like one day we might be on Oprah, the next day we're like, how are we going to pay the payroll? You know, so it yeah. was like, <laughs> it was like all the highs and all the lows. So if you love this, it creates a level of stickiness and, um, and passion that I think, um, is is not really as easily matched in larger organizations, in my opinion, and because it's through adversity that we create connection and um, and you know even in our personal lives. When you think of it's funny because leaders don't often relate their personal lives to their professional lives, but there's not much that's very different about the two, mm-hmm. right? Going through tough things with friends and family connects you. Going through tough things with people at work connects you. The more connection, the more trust, the more trust, the more people move mountains for you. So mm-hmm. when I coach, it's not quite as direct as what I just said, but trust is really what gets us to that next place. And going through hard things together is how you develop trust. Yeah. And then I'll kind of tack on to that. I, I think, you know, even if you don't succeed 100 percent, you've actually done a lot of really great personal growth during that journey. And that's why people who've been through it, been at the helm been a part of a leadership team during one of these downturn cycles, 
and either came came out the other end one way or the other, either got laid off or exited or, you know, somewhere in, in between, you know, are much better for it. They're always much better for it. And you've had experiences that most people don't even know exist. Exactly. And I, I've always told people, you know, when they've said, oh, I feel like a failure or something like that. That's not a failure. You tried something other people were afraid <laughs> to try, didn't want to take the risk for. I see that as success. Yes. Would it have been nice to have succeeded in the way you originally wanted to. But again, the nonlinear thing falls into play, which is like, you've had now an experience that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Absolutely. Well, Maria, uh, part of Sky Lounge is um, travel. So I know you travel a lot um, and go talk to lots of different customers. I think you're even multi-continent at this point. You know, what's the coolest place that you've gone to for one of your clients? So, um, I, they'd be disappointed if I didn't mention them. And for the last five years, I've been the fractional chief people officer of a company that is based out of Iceland in the U.S. And so I've been to Iceland a few times with them. Um, and then recently, in the last year, we've created a development uh, function in Porto, Portugal. And so about a month ago, I came back from Porto. Um, and I, I just love it. I love meeting people of different cultures. I love... I love considering the human capital component in different countries because business behavior is so different. The cultural norms and the business norms are so different. So for me, it's uh, it's always super interesting, exciting. You know, being in the U.S. is, of course, very exciting. I've done it for years, but I, I love the cultural component. When you go to different cultures, especially multi-continent, um, how do you how do you, how does that change who you pick for leadership? So uh, you have to be really aware of the differences in the business culture. So I love another, just to quote another book, a book called Culture Maps, which is just sort of uh, uh, what how it is different. Business runs differently in France and Iceland and what those cultural norms are and how people focused are they, how people focused are they not. So you have to kind of know what you're getting into. Um Doing business in China, for example, is very different than doing business in the U.S. And you need to know those cultural norms before you try to go in and make a difference in those organizations. So um, for me, the learning of that is really exciting. And uh, every place is different. Uh, and so I treat it unique. I don't try to make it American if that's uh, <laughs> what, what, yeah. what is that called? American defaultism. I don't try to do that. Sure. Yeah. And I, I'm totally with you on that. I think uh, people are super important and getting the people right is number one for any C-level leader and culture, you know, is a hard thing to get right. It's an easy thing to get right. If you know what you're doing, you know, it's not, it takes a lot of really small things, but I think it's more of an attitude and knowing kind of where you're going, you know, so have you ever worked with people? I'm sure you have um, that had a toxic culture or just kind of a, maybe a culture that's not hitting on all cylinders and they didn't know why, they call you up and they say, "Hey, Maria, can, you know, can you can you diagnose this and and get us going again? You know, what do you say to a, a company like that? And then what are, what are the tools that you give those leaders who are, you know, not everybody's willing to change, and especially culture is a hard thing. But you know, what do you what do you say to that leadership crew that wants a better, more healthy culture that is probably got to update to the times in a lot of ways? Yeah. So um, uh, my, my grandmother used to use a phrase that basically said the fish stinks from the head. Um, <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, very often I will tell um, I will mm -hmm. tell people it probably begins with you, leadership team, and how you're behaving and what you have allowed in the organization, what you've encouraged without even knowing, uh, you know, if you've encouraged politics. So often people don't understand politics is 
what we call in our personal lives gossip. And that's what that's what business politics is. It's it's just gossip. And so the more you don't encourage that, the more you don't put things, sweep things under the rug. If you deal deal with things directly, I'm a very direct person, and so very often people are like, "Well, she's very direct." But also, I think that level of transparency is what more organizations need in order for people to feel that psychological safety at work. And so usually, I start there. I start with psychological safety and politics. Because if you can fix those couple things, and usually it begins at leadership, mm-hmm. fish things from the head. Um, and if you can begin with leadership, then you can pretty much conquer anything. Um, and then don't allow it to fester or encourage. So the people who do that kind of behavior, they don't last very long in the organization. Yeah. And I, I've seen a lot of startups that have succeeded. Um, and, and they almost always have a radical transparency culture mm-hmm. where everybody is is definitely, you know, not afraid to show their cards. Hey, this is where we are, good, bad, or ugly, and also accountable. Um, so I, th- I think that's a part of it too. Um, as you go in, you know, the engineering teams accountable to the sales teams, accountable to the finance team. Everybody's got to work together. You know, have yeah, you, you have you gone in, in and? Uh, yeah. You can't come in guns blazing. You have to develop the trust first, and that's really the part that people miss sometimes. They think, oh, I'm going to come in and be super candid. No, because think about your personal relationships. The, the people in your life who can be super candid with you are the people who you have developed trust with. And so you have to take the time as a leader to develop that trust before you can have the luxury of being candid with people. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think a big part of that is also um, the accountability of calling your shots, telling people what you're, you're thinking, what you're about to do, you know, doing it and then told, tell them what you just did, you know, and saying, Hey, you know, we said, we're going to do this. We only got this done. Um, you know, we're still in a good place. I just wanted to let everybody know, you know, this is how we're going to, you know, course correct. And then the more of those that you can do and you call your shots, execute and the, and the better you are at that, I think that's how you, you earn that trust over time. Communicating. Exactly. And I do, that's another component that I look at as soon as I go in, like, what is the level of communication to people? Do people feel siloed? Are they, you know, not, are they, are they being shielded from communication? And so when people in the absence of communication, people make up stories and those stories are generally not true. Uh, so isn't it better to just deliver that information and make sure they know so that they're not developing their own stories? So I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you. I have these weird, like almost superstitions. When I go into a startup, I can go to their kitchen and figure out where they are as a culture, you know? So if they have really decent coffee, right? And there's no like weird change jar beside it where everybody's being stingy, you know, and they have, you know, good mugs, but not like perfect espresso, you know, you get, you're like, okay, these, these folks are in the right place. They're fiscally responsible. They're not like, you know, pointing fingers at each other because, you know, somebody's got the free coffee going. Are there any weird little things you look for that are smells or kind of like almost superstitions you know, um, in, in these companies. So a lot of my companies are virtual, so I don't, I don't get to do the coffee thing, but that sounds, uh, sounds like a really interesting one. Um, generally I look, uh, at the CEO, if I'm being honest with you, and I look at the sense of humility and learning, um, that they, uh, have because the CEO will generally surround him, him or herself with, um, people who have the same values as he or she has, maybe not the same experience with the same values. And this is the whole comment about values in an organization. So 
I'll get a good sense from the CEO. And I generally, I mean, I've been with this company for five and a half years because it's the most amazing CEO I've ever worked with. Um, but I'll generally um, understand how a company is going to go by its leadership, really. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it really makes a difference um, the examples that people see in front of them, because as does as goes leadership, so does everyone. And that's also what they attract. So that's usually what I use as a as a barometer. I also use their understanding of the power of the team, um, which really driven people sometimes think if I just plow through this, I'm going to boss everybody around, tell them what to do. It's just me versus if you could leverage this massive team of people and, and harness the power of those people, you actually don't have to be really good at what you do. You just have to be really good at harnessing the power of the people and people. And those are the best uh, examples that I have, I have seen, you know, leveraging a team can show up in very different ways, right? It could be your permanent team that you're leveraging in the organization, or it could be a team that was put together. That's a combination of permanent and fractional, which is what we do. Um, Todd, I know you've had quite a few experiences. Absolutely. Actually, Maria, we worked on that one project in New York and I won't name names, but uh, very large company that's multi-continent Europe and U.S. Actually, they're around the world. Luxury real estate. Um, Just taken a a big chunk of money from Premira, um, private equity company. Um, I came in as a um, interim CTO and it was one of these deals where, hey, you know, our guy's quitting. We didn't you know, necessarily negotiate well, he really is leaving, you know, we have a week, can you be in New York, like now? <laughs> and so yes, I'll be in New York. And then so um, it worked out very nicely, very great people. Um, they, they all wanted to do really great things. And, you know, to your, you know, point earlier, great, great culture, the CEO of the Americas uh, puts a premium premium on people and culture. And, you know, if people starting to get a little toxic or, or whiny or negative, he, he really doesn't put up with that. Um, and he, you know, gives him a, a little minute to catch up, but then, you know, gets him out of there. Um, so at, at some point, this CEO said, hey, you're doing a great job interim. We need more, you know, and I, I couldn't, I just can't give him full-time, full-time. So he said, hey, let's build a team. And I said, you know what? I know the perfect person to call. We'll call Maria. <laughs> and I already had a principal um, in there with me that was working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, um, you know, and we were doing what we could do with the limited team that they had. Um, and there was some turnover just because they had some poor leadership that they had to get out of there um, before we showed up. And we started building the team from the ground up. Right. And then you you helped us, you and your team helped us um, recruit, gosh, you know, six or eight software people, including some really, really bright um, PhD type people. Uh, for management. Um, and then, you know, we grew it and um, eventually you help um, recruit the eventual full-time CTO. And that company had never had a full-time, full-time CTO. Um, and they've gone and done amazing things. And I think actually um, that was a referral from the CFO um, gang up in New York City, right? So I think that's a really interesting way that, that we work, you know, that's very common. Um, have you had other success stories, you know, at, I, um, tech CXO? and actually, you know, you make a really good point because as we're talking about, you know, people laying off and, and a possible downturn in economy. I mean, when you consider we are such a low risk way of knowing that you can continue with your business. So for example, mm-hmm. let's say you do cuts, 
let's say you, you know, you decide you have to downsize the team. You can use fractional resources until things correct themselves and then go back to that permanent um, uh, placement. And I think where the advantage is here is not just the fact that you got this fractional resource at a time where you couldn't invest in a full-time headcount, but now you have, now you, Todd, are really very knowledgeable about that, about that organization. So if they ever have a turnover situation or if they ever need some extra help, they have the padding, if you will, of knowing that other people know a lot about the organization as well. And to me, right. that's a competitive advantage. And so a lot Absolutely. of my clients have used me in that way. They've said, hey, come in, be our fractional head of HR, then backfill yourself, but then be around in case this person doesn't work <laughs> out or yeah. whatever that situation is. I mean, it's a it's a comfortable feeling to know that you have an extra set of hands at any given moment. Sure. And I always tell people, I'll, I will always be your friend. I'll be your friend forever. And, you know, even if I don't bill any hours and there's no financial relationship, I, I will always be your friend and I'll always check on you because I want to hear the end of the story. Right. And we, we get really vested in our clients' success, too. I mean, that's part Absolutely. of why a startup becomes yeah. like your family, like that you care about it. You want it to succeed. And so you'll do anything to be able to do that. And we're lucky in that we can leverage all kinds of resources inside of the practice to make sure that our clients succeed. So my client, you, you asked um, you asked if I've had those experiences. My most recent experiences with this client that I've mentioned a few times now, and I've had project managers in there. I've had, you know, CISO help in there. I've had strategy help in there, all from TechSeek. So the recruiting function, my recruiting function alone has hired 95 positions for them. They decided, wow. you know what, we don't want an in-house recruiting function. I have a VP of HR there that reports to me, but they don't want a recruiting function because we are doing such a good job for them. So I think, you know, leveraging and figuring out, hey, I'd rather invest in a developer than I would a recruiter. Why don't we just go ahead and use TechCXO for outsourced, outsourced recruiting services? Yeah. And I, uh, you know, selfishly, <laughs> a plug for you. You know, I talked to one of my CEOs that had just um, pulled down a, a private equity round. Um, and, you know, they were looking at hiring all these, you know, very expensive roles. And, you know, expensive is a, a funny word because he needs them and he can now afford them. Mm -hmm. And his business is going to absolutely skyrocket once he gets this team in place. But, you know, when you're looking at some of these traditional recruiting models where they take some percentage of, you know, first year salary, you know, it get very expensive. And, 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 and the incentives can get a little perverse, you know, between what the recruiting person is, is recruiting for and then what you're willing to pay and who you want to hire. Yeah, we'd need an entirely another podcast for me to tell you how, <laughs> how broken that business is. And actually, that's why I set out doing what I am doing on an hourly basis, because I wanted clients to feel like they could leverage this at a fraction of the cost. Um, I get paid no matter what. So, you know, I, I, I don't drive up a higher salary so I can make a bigger commission. That's not how we mm -hmm. roll. And I think it's a higher integrity offering, just like TechCXO is a higher integrity offering. And, um, oh, absolutely. and you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that we, we really only sell it to TechCXO clients. Uh, it's like a value add for TechCXO clients. And, um, and I think they've really appreciated it. In fact, a lot of people are like, where has this been my whole life? This is something that I wish <laughs> existed a long time ago. Gosh, it, and every time I've introduced you, it, it's basically a phone call and they go, Absolutely. Let's do yeah. it. No brainer. It's a, it's so, a great offering that I think is needed in the startup space. You know, we talk a lot about how, you know, different pods or different functionalities within TechCXO work together. What about clients? You know, do you ever take and cross pollinate clients? You ever done that? I do. Where you? I get a lot okay. of young CEOs sometimes where they just need someone to trust. And generally it's me. And I, mm -hmm. you know, the, 
one CEO that I work with calls me as conciliary. It's like, I'm going to go, oh, you want to run something by you because I don't want to say it. I don't want to show my cards to my leadership team that I don't know this or that I feel nervous about this or whatever. So I'm sort of like the trusted psychological advisor, if you will. But if they need other places to go, of course, there's Vistage and places like that. But generally, if I know two CEOs that I think will get along, I will connect them through my own network and say, you guys could really use each other. You're building similar businesses or you have similar experience or, you know, you you could leverage each other, have a beer with each other and see how you can help each other out. I think that is invaluable to young, younger CEOs. Sure. I love making those introductions where you say, I'm not sure what you're going to talk about, but I know you've got a lot to talk about. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) It's matchmaking. It's recruiting to a degree, except it's just putting two people together that you think highly of. And and it's wonderful to be at our stage of our career where we have the luxury of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now's a great time to start a company. You know, I hope we get to talk to lots of these, you know, companies that are starting, pulling down a little bit of investment, you know, the economy may not be the, the greatest and it's a little bit confusing what the macro picture looks like. Now's a great time to start a company. Now's a great time to go raise money. And if you're in good shape and you got product market fit and you know what you're selling to people, man, pour on the gas, let's go, you know, give us a call. We will help you out. Even if, you know, we just friends for a little while, we don't have to build. Yeah. It all comes back to people and culture, doesn't it? It does. And that's how I make a living. (laughs) Yay. Well, Maria, You've been so great. And thank you for sharing a few moments of your life with us. How can people find you on the internet if they want to follow up and uh, interact with you? Sure. So you can take a look at techcxo.com and there's a search by name or search by practice. Again, my name is Maria Goldshaw. I'm the managing partner of the human capital practice. We have recruiters, we have compensation experts, we have directors, we have partners, we have anything you'd need in the human capital for growth phase company. And Maria, you've been so great for me and my practice at TechCXO. Thank you so much for helping us. And I, I do have another client I want to talk to you about after this. <laughs> so, Got it. I'm around. All right. All right. Thanks, Todd. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us in the Sky Lounge. Please like and subscribe to hear more from Tales from the Sky Lounge here and anywhere else you get your podcasts.